Thank you for downloading this Mass Device Radio podcast. This interview was recorded live at our Device Talks Boston show on July 15th, 2014. It features Brian Kincannon, the CEO of Hemanetics, a Massachusetts-based blood management company. The interview is conducted by Brian Johnson, publisher of Mass Device. Thank you for downloading this Mass Device Radio podcast. Hemanetics was a company that looked to uh, innovate the entire market. It, it it served, and you know, essentially, it built the markets it was operating in. You know, what what do you think it is about the company's culture that's fostered that? I think you know one of the most important things that um, leadership has done at Hemanetics, and long before I was there, was um, create an environment to let uh, good people do great things. You think about that entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, I think those are the types of engineers that Jack Latham um, hired in the beginning, and I think we've been fortunate enough to continue to do that throughout, although uh, along the way we've stumbled a bit. Uh, when uh, this management team came in about 11 years ago now, we were a company that was sideways for about six years, and uh, as I did my due diligence to come to the company, it's one of the things that fascinated me the most is they basically had invented every device uh, that they sold and, and, and in many respects invented every market they served in. And you couldn't understand why, they, why they, they struggled. And it really was getting out of people's way and letting people do what they do best and, and uh, invent and innovate. And, and I think that's been a real true cornerstone of our history for 40-plus years. What's the, what's the challenge of that, though? I mean, it seems that there would, that would create some unique challenges where you're, you know, you're always standing on the shoulders of, 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 you know, your past success. But, I mean, in terms of putting out new products, does that add a lot of pressure here? Is that in sort of internal, like, we have to keep recreating the wheel over and over again? Or? But you have to be willing to accept failure. Uh, you know, for every success, there's a whole bunch of failures that, 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 uh, that lead up to that. But, um, uh, you know, good people just don't wake up and decide they're going to come to the company and start doing bad things. Um, so you just keep that environment alive, and that's part of what we're doing. The, the part of the restructuring we're going through right now is how do we transform what we do here in Braintree from a manufacturing site into a to a technology center, uh, where we're going to house three to four hundred of the brightest uh, engineering and, and scientific minds in our industry to figure out what do we do for the next forty years? Uh, because uh, the next forty years, what, what got us to where we are today is not going to be what gets us to the next five to ten years, never mind the next 40. Mm -hmm. uh, since you brought it up, we might as well just tackle that right away. I mean, you're a local guy. Uh, you're one of the few publicly traded CEOs that I know who basically grew up, what, like five, ten miles from where you're, where you're in charge of. And, you know, there was a circuitous path there, and we'll get to that. But, um, you know, you're from Weymouth. Humanetics is in Braintree. Um, you, you did have to go through a recent uh, restructuring where you had to shift jobs out of the state. Tell me about what that was like for you, um, as a both sort of emotionally as a local guy, and then also uh, as the head of this company. Um, you've been talking to my wife. Um, <laughs> uh, it was, uh, you know, a real challenge. I, I'm one of. Uh, uh, I grew up in Weymouth, uh, as Brian said. I'm one of six kids. My wife's one of seven, and we all live in the area, and so. The, the biggest thing that we had to do was really manage the message. Um, you know, every one of you knows that to compete in this world today, we're a global company. Roughly half of our sales are outside the United States, and every one of our competitors uh, manufactures 
uh, in environments that are far more cost competitive than the environment uh, where, where, uh, where we manufacture today. And so we really needed to understand and appreciate what were we going to do tomorrow differently than what we were going to do today because we had to invest differently. We needed those dollars to invest differently for our future. And so it really was grounded on doing what was right, doing not only what was right uh, for our customers, uh, what was right for our employee base, uh, but what was right for, uh, for our shareholders. And so managing that message was the important thing because the headlines are going to say one thing, uh, but it really is the reality of how you approach it is a very different thing. Some of the things we did differently, um, and you all know this, but you're required to give 60-day notice. We gave 12 to 18 months notice to our to our employees, and and a lot of people will say that's that's a dumb thing to do, and you shouldn't do that, and it's you know you 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 die a slow death. And we we really received very good responses from our employees. We were very transparent. The first thing we wanted to do is make sure for every one of them we we answered a very simple question: What does this change mean to me? meaning them, every one of them. Uh, and then we, uh, we, we were able to work with the state who has some phenomenal resources, many of which we didn't even know. We literally took over one of our training rooms, turned them over to a transition team that worked with our employees uh, so that we could um, uh, get our employees retrained in ways they needed and wanted uh, to be retrained for their next path in their career. When you have 12 to 18 months to do that, you can do things differently in that environment than you could if you have... You have 60 days. We had to go through English as a second language is a great example. I attended graduations of that. We brought in other companies to interview our people. They got to view what our people were doing on the floors and interview them. We've made changes as we've gone through. People can opt to, uh, to leave sooner because they got a job and still get their severance and move on. So it was really about how we manage that the right way. You can do the right thing for the company. You can do the right thing for uh, your 4,300 employees. You can do the right thing for your customers and shareholders, but uh, it doesn't mean you, you can't do the right thing for the people that are infected uh, in, a, in a negative way through this process. Uh, the most amazing thing in all of that is that uh, one month into the transition, the productivity in our Braintree facility was higher than when we started. Wow. What, what motivated you to go through all those steps and do that, though? Was it just because, I mean, what, what, why? Well, it, it, it was not talking to my family, I can assure you of that. <laughs> it, was, uh, uh, it really goes to doing what's, what's right for the business. Um, you, you, uh, uh, every one of us has been you know, faced with making those very difficult uh, decisions. If we, if we made decisions based on what it just meant to, to us individually, we'd probably do a lot of things different in our lives. But this really was what was right for the company. It allowed us to move from 10 manufacturing locations, many of them uh, that were legacy facilities, some of them going back to the very beginning of the company that were no longer productive in, 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 in the way we needed them to be. Never mind, they weren't in the right place. They, they weren't as productive as we needed them to be and through no fault of the employees. Um, so we needed to go from what we started with 10 and, and we went down, we're now down to five. Mm -hmm. um, we're in... Uh, uh, lower cost, fast growing places like uh, Tijuana, Mexico, Penang, Malaysia, uh, moving out of places like uh, Braintree, Massachusetts, uh, Bothwell, Scotland, Ascoli, Italy. Uh, anybody who's been in those places, they're, they're great places 
but they're challenging places for businesses like like ours right. when every one of our competitors is, is manufacturing in places like Northern Africa, the Dominican Republic, and places like that. And so let's... It's, let's go back now to when you came to this company because when you came and you came in 2003, okay. you were running a billion-dollar division of Cardinal, and yet you chose to take a position running a $100 million division of a small company selling basically blood separation machines. Um, what, what, motive, what possibly could have <laughs> led you to that decision? That seems like trading down. It's closer to home. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it was one of those things where I, I grew up in a, in a distribution services environment, in a great environment. I learned a tremendous amount uh, in that environment. I learned the importance of customers and the importance of service and what we did day in and day out. But as I was trying to decide what I wanted to do for the next half of my career, um, had good counsel from a, from a friend and classmate who was in the executive recruiting business and... Um, uh, said, do you really want to go, do you want to go deeper into what you already do? There's a lot of people that value that and go run a business over there. Or, or, or would you rather uh, look at going more broadly into the healthcare environment and doing things that are different? He said, I know you, you, you won't be happy unless you're going 100 miles an hour with your hair on fire. And I didn't understand what he meant by that. And so he said, uh, um, well, let me ask you a few questions. He said, what kind of experience do you have in manufacturing? What kind of experience do you have in R&D? What kind of experience do you have with shareholders? What kind of experience do you have uh, with uh, boards. What kind of experience do you have internationally? And by the time I got done with the conversation, I felt pretty inferior. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so I really broadened my, my view and my focus and what I wanted to do different. And so uh, to, to think that you'd go from running a billion-dollar services business to uh, something of that magnitude in the medical device space would have been foolish. And it was a good transition for me and uh, learned a lot in those early days and, uh, and, and found that there was many... Uh, experiences that were transferable in what we did here, but much that I had to learn, and it gave me the opportunity to do mm -hmm. that. What kind of company did you find when you, I mean, you knew about hemonetics from going up in the area, but what kind of company did you find there when you, I mean, you came under the, um, the, the Brad Nutter regime, for lack of a better word, but Brad Nutter was the CEO, and he brought you in, and this was a turnaround, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was... Um, you know, in instances like that, you're really trying to find, um, you know, what value exists in a company like this. I, as, I, as I mentioned, doing that due diligence, it was a real opportunity to understand um, some failures in leadership and how we needed to approach some things differently. But the company had done some interesting things. They had, um, uh, you know, the beginning of the last decade, uh, the company was not in any aspect of software. But uh, in January of 2002, they had acquired a very small software business in Edmonton, Canada, about $5 million in, in revenue called Fifth Dimension, 5D for short. And in our business, broken down into three pieces, commercial plasma, the collection of the plasma that's used to uh, make the plasma-derived biopharmaceutical drugs, IVIG, albumin, factor eight, things of that nature. The collection business for collecting blood components that are used clinically in hospitals, customers like the American Red Cross, the, the uh, Japanese Red Cross, um, the EFS in France, and then our hospital business, um, which is our cell salvage business, our diagnostics business, so both sides of the spectrum. But they had, they had acquired this software business that was focused on um, automating the manual collection process for plasma. 
And it was a fascinating business. And uh, it was struggling. Our plasma business was struggling. The company had been sideways for six years. In 1997, it was about $300 million in revenue. In 2003, it was about $300 million in revenue. It had actually gone backwards on virtually every line in the P&L. Um, and, but we saw an opportunity with this software business that was being run separately to embrace this for the most simple way of explaining it. Um, uh, use that software business that's already embedded with your customers, uh, collect your customers' data, turn that data into information, understand your customers' problems, um, solve their problems, become more relevant in their space. And that was the birth of blood management uh, in the plasma space. And I know that Brad told me like when he he sort of pulled this idea of blood management and ran with it before he even really knew what it meant. Is that was that was that from your experience as well? Well, Brad used to explain our devices as devices that suck and pump. So that was uh, <laughs> that was that was pretty technical. Uh, Brad had a great vision and and deserves tremendous tremendous credit uh, for for seeing that. Uh, no question and. Uh, really uh, focus the organization and how to uh, uh, you know use software if you will as an enabler of blood management it 's a small part of our business today today that five million dollar uh, uh, business is is through acquisitions and growth uh, about a seventy five million dollar part of our business but it's a it 's a real enabler of of all that we do in all aspects of our business, not just plasma now but in the blood collection and even the hospital space so yeah, very visionary. But, you, I mean, you're selling $300 million of suck and pump machines, and there's this $5 million business, and it's and you guys decide that that's the future of the company? Um, yeah. <laughs> how, how did, I mean, that seems, I mean, it's obviously worked out very well, but, I mean, how did you guys kind of think through that? I mean, what, 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 besides it just making sense, or maybe that's just it, I mean, how did you decide that that was the bet to take? Um, it really became clear for us um, when you when you were able to get in where we had that five million dollars worth of sales, but come in with a totally different value proposition. So, in other words, instead of selling them a product software that did nothing else other than um, automate what had previously been a manual process, uh, but when you integrate that software with devices, disposables, when you integrate that software and grow it past um, uh, the simplistic. Um, focus of gathering data uh, for the purpose of complying uh, in a highly regulated environment, it really became a tremendous opportunity for us. So and I can even come at it this way. So how many people have ever donated blood? Raise your hands. So we need more blood donors out there, and so uh, that's one thing. How many have ever donated plasma? So look around. These are the people that donated plasma probably in college for, for gas money. Yeah. I have two board members that do the same thing, or did the same thing. Um, and the point that I'm getting at is that if you donated plasma today, and if, if, you, if you were in that environment, if you've donated any time recently, um, you'd find that it's a fully automated, highly integrated uh, business. Uh, a lot of it driven by the big companies in that space, Baxter, CSL, Octopharma, Griffles, the four big, uh, not only control about 90% of the drugs produced in that space, uh, but when we began this process, uh, they collected less than 25% of the, the, the world's plasma. Today, uh, they collect over 90% of the world's plasma. And of that, uh, over 70% of that is done with our devices and our disposables and our software. 
And so it was really working with them how you took what was a pretty manual process, not just in managing that floor process, but now how do you manage it? How do you, how do you then move to the adjacencies of all the way through recruiting and managing these donors to how do you use software to, to, to track the fractions, to track the plasma as it goes into fractionation, track the fractions as they go into drugs, track the drugs as they go into the market. So it really allowed us to expand the, the full breadth of what we did from a blood management standpoint. It's, it's incredibly innovative, and it's interesting because, I mean, you, you, you see now a lot of other companies in the device space are, are looking at the same sort of idea about how they expand the services of their products. I mean, I know you're, you're a pretty sort of straightforward tunnel vision kind of guy. Um, do, you, do, you, do you talk to your colleagues at all about this? We, we, we had a little bit of a conversation on this. No, not a, not a whole bunch. Um, uh, it is, uh, it's like anything else, you go to the industry meetings and you, you'll talk through this. But even in today's day and age of blood management, um, it, is, um, uh, it, is, it is a great buzzword. It's certainly something that, that people recognize when you think of, of, uh, of blood management and you think about what I just talked to you about on the plasma side. For those of you who have donated blood, you think through, carry, that, carry what I just said into the... To the, uh, to the process of donating blood, and you appreciate that that continues to be an enormously manual process today. You, you go to donate blood as it's, it's our social responsibility to do, and every time you do that, they hand you that clipboard with paper, and you fill that out, and that's, what, 20, 25 minutes of your life. You'll never get back again. You do that every time you donate blood. Um, then what happens? You, you get cleared to the donor floor, and then they stick a really big needle in your arm. Uh, a 16-gauge needle. That's a real experience if you haven't had that. Uh, and it has to be a big needle because the only thing that lets blood leave your body is the size of the hole that's created. Um, your heart keeps pumping and gravity. We put the bag below the bed. So it's a, it's a very manual, kludgy process. Um, I like to say the biggest advance we've made in collecting blood since the Second World War is we use plastic bags versus glass bottles. Mm -hmm. and, and people love to be critical of customers in this space, American Red Cross, not-for-profit, um, Japanese Red Cross. It is not customers that innovate. It's industry that innovates. We bring those solutions to those, and in, in many respects, it's companies like Chemonetics who are at fault for not having innovated this industry sooner. So the buzzword of blood management is still in its birth. The success we've had in plasma still has a long way to go in the, in the uh, blood collection and hospital space. I mean, when I wrote uh, the... The, the history of the company. I was fascinated by all the things I learned about blood. <laughs> you know, I just kind of, I just had never thought about it. I mean, what, I would love to, need, to know from you, what do you, what's the most fascinating thing you've learned about blood? It's red. <laughs> um, I knew nothing about blood when I, when I, when I came to Hemonetics. Um, uh, and they put me in a room with uh, one of the clinical trainers and I got two days. I don't know anybody else has gotten two days since since I've been there. I got two days of training and uh, and a real crash course. Uh, but the interesting thing about blood is that um, people forget um, blood is an organ, uh, and every time you get uh, uh, a, a a transfusion, uh, uh, you're you're getting a, a an organ transplant. Uh, that's the world we live in today, uh, and in the United States. Uh, up until about uh, 15, 18 months ago, we used about 30% more blood in the U.S. than most people did around the rest of the world. I know that surprises you because we don't overuse other resources, but uh, <laughs> uh, 
but uh, it is it, it is not it is not like we're yeah, it's not like you're, you're you're filling your car up with gas. You're putting somebody else's blood in your body, and 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 when that is needed, there's nothing more important. I mean, when you when you need blood to survive, there's nothing more important. But we have to treat blood with the respect that it deserves, and appreciate that you know, like everything else in life, it can bring the good and it can bring the bad. Um, and so, if it's not used in the proper way, it can have outcomes that are less than ideal. Um, today's day and age, we we, we cross we, we type in cross match, um, uh, and that's important, right? If you're A positive, you want to be getting A positive blood or O neg blood. Uh, but every one of us has our blood has over three three hundred to four hundred antigens, uh, and and uh, about thirty to forty of those are clinically meaningful. Yet in today's day and age, we don't. While the testing exists, we don't match that, um, and those are important matches. For certain patients, when you talk about care and survival, uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, and getting well, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, there's a lot left to be done in the world of blood and what we do. And again, this isn't, you know, that that our collectors are doing things wrong. Uh, the American Red Cross, uh, Hemexcel, large collectors in the United States, um, French EFS, the NHSBT in the UK. These are people that feel as passionately about this industry and about what we do as anybody. But industry must more aggressively innovate and bring those solutions to them uh, more rapidly. What's, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing the industry in blood today? Um, it is uh, the, the ability to change at a pace uh, that's, that uh, uh, keeps up with the rest of innovation in medicine. Um, go back to what I said before, just the simple process of collecting blood. Um, and you think about technology advances. Um, and so one of the challenges we find is in an, in, an, in an industry that hasn't innovated for so long, as you now rapidly bring that innovation, you've got a not-for-profit, risk-averse, change-averse customer, and you've got to really work with them to get them through that space. And again, these are not things that are their fault. Uh, this is the industry as it exists today. And so you really have to work with them where, where we might be used to helping customers get 80% there and move fast and learn as we go. Uh, in this space, you can't do that. Um, and, and it's you know, for two reasons. One, one is that they're not-for-profits and they don't have a lot of, a lot of room to, to risk uh, certain things there. Uh, and... and you know, their, their focus and their passion, when you think about what I just talked about, blood and the clinical elements of blood, you know, it's highly regulated. They're very careful about how they manage this, and, and respectfully so. So let's go uh, right back to running the business here. Uh, you guys have been pretty, you know, pretty acquisitive over the past five years. You've bought quite a few companies, maybe not in the last year or so, but, I mean, what... what what do you think of that are the elements of a successful acquisition or a successful merger now that you've done it a few times? You know, it's uh, anybody that's on acquisitions, you know that it's as much planful as it is opportunistic. Um, the first thing is is that, you know, we need to have a very clear, um, uh, well-defined strategy. Um, we went through uh, 11 years ago uh, what was called a, a core competency analysis to really understand um, 
what were we really good at? What, what could we stand up in front of a customer and say, we could do better than anybody else in our space? And, and, and so why, why should a customer value us for that? And we did that. We did it internally uh, with our employees first, and then we validated it with our customers. And it really helped us appreciate what to focus on. And that was really the first year. Um, that's when we really started to understand the value of blood management software. It took us a few years to get that right, ready for prime time, take it to plasma. That was about 2006. Um, we began testing our, our focus on that, um, uh, recognized we had something of value from 2006 to 2010. We went from about a little less than 40% market share uh, of plasma collections around the world to over 70% today recognize that blood management does work. Uh, we then had to take that concept, that philosophy, understood what worked in that plasma space, uh, and what do we need to do differently in the, in the blood collection space, and, and how do we get there? Um, and the recognition was that there were certain elements that we could build, but there were many that we could, that we could buy mm -hmm. as, we went, as we went into that, into that space. And, and so what it was was really understand what did you need to do and how did you need to get there. Um, so the first things we started to do was build out uh, the software component uh, because Plasma software, what we used in Plasma, wasn't necessarily going to be the same uh, software you'd use in, in your, uh, your blood collection. I mean, think of it this way. There's roughly about 450 Plasma collection centers in the United States. There's about 150 blood centers, so you think it's going to be easier. But those, those plasma centers are fixed site. Donors physically go to those plasma centers. You put your devices there. You put your software into an AS400 in a closet, and it runs. But those 150 blood centers run anywhere from 20 to 40 mobile drives a day. So what you do in a fixed site plasma center, you needed to create the same capabilities that could be run, you know, four to 6,000 times a day in church basements, school gymnasiums, big office buildings. So your approach to it had to be a little bit different, and that's why acquisitions became a real uh, uh, benefit. But what we did is we mapped out our white space. So where were we strong, but, but uh, where were we not strong, and, and then we approached it in that fashion. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest acquisition that we ended up making as we moved into the whole blood space was really born out of the focus of... Um, how did we need to become filter independent? Because in our space, virtually every disposable we use um, has filtration, and the recognition uh, to, to, to innovate in this space and to grow into adjacencies, we, we had to control filtration, not only from the standpoint of um, a cost, but in terms of, of, uh, of R&D. Uh, where did you go next? Uh, and, and, uh, and things of that nature. Uh, you know, as you look at filtration, uh, while, the, while it was in the blood space, one of the more exciting one of the, one of the most exciting customers uh, when we acquired that business was our plasma customers because they're looking at how to target fractions and filtration is potentially a method by which you're able to do that on the front end versus um, how you take that through fractionation. So we had to think that way. Because mm -hmm. you've made some acquisitions where they're almost the same size as you and things like that. Uh, what do you think has been the the most successful part of that, just in terms of integration, or what, what was the hardest part for you as an executive? Yeah, you know, it was, it was recognizing that um, uh, as we got, I want to say, probably six or seven or eight acquisitions deep, that what you thought you were doing in terms of integrating these businesses really wasn't what you needed to be doing. Uh, 
Uh, and so when we, we made that large acquisition, which was the uh, Paul Transfusion Medicine business, we came at it in a vastly different way. We got help. We, we used McKinsey to really help us understand uh, how to come at that uh, and, and manage uh, uh, an integration focus, uh, which is really what has led to our, uh, our, our, our distribution and uh, uh, manufacturing transformation uh, that we've now begun, but it was we created 17 cross-functional teams that not only looked at that acquisition, but all our acquisitions to ensure that we were able to do things in, in that integration uh, that we hadn't even completed in acquisitions that were two and three years old. So we looked at totally integrating that to include things that you don't think about. You know, we're, we're, we're now on the back end of that, but looking at things like culture. Um, uh, we've now done... Uh, uh, 14 acquisitions in the last seven years. Um, and, and you look at culture not only from the standpoint of how do you focus on your business internationally uh, and what that means, because transfusion medicine is not practiced the same way everywhere around the world, uh, to how do you look at the impact of culture and the acquisitions you've made? And how do you really call out you know, what you acquired and what you want to keep and what you want to integrate and what you want to be able to to, to expand through your organization versus what you don't want, what you don't need, um, uh, uh, what, you're, what you're worried about contaminating your business. And so it, it, we ended up doing a complete culture analysis and, and, and taking us through that, and we're still going through that, and what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And that's really something that the response from our employees was overwhelming, far greater than we ever thought we'd go through. So you're doing a lot of looking internally. Is that why you're doing this? Well, especially now, as, you've, as you've, you, 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 you realize you start this, you're a $300 million company, you're now almost a billion-dollar company, um, and you recognize um, what we have today um, in its current format and structure isn't what it needs to be to really be able to grow this business for the future. So you've got to make those tough decisions uh, and, uh, and, and recognize that that's going to be the launch pad for your next billion dollars plus of growth. Yeah, but it doesn't strike me as... Uh working with somebody whose personality you said was going 100 miles per hour with their hair on fire looking at, looking <laughs> looking inside up have you had to have you sort of had to adapt your own decision making um, uh, to not keep just like oh let's just go buy that company you know but why are we even thinking about that you know it it is one of those things that uh, uh, you rely on your staff i one thing that i'll that I, you know i feel very blessed with is i've got a great staff um, who uh, understand um, our vision, our strategy, where we're going, feel as passionately about this business as I do. Um, uh, we, uh, we, 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 and we do something that I've never done in any company, uh, but we visit on our strategy once a month uh, where we dedicate uh, a two- to four-hour session of our staff meeting uh, that's dedicated to focusing on uh, the execution of the strategies that are critical to the next two to three years of our business to ensure we stay on track. Mm. Uh, and it was really born in that meeting that helped us understand that we, we've acquired something that's really good and really powerful, um, but uh, the value of what we have wasn't going to be realized um, uh, by just simply bringing more companies that we slap on the side of this. We had to change that foundation uh, upon which uh, we were going to build the company uh, in its next five to ten years of growth. So you're the fifth CEO in the company's history, and God, I hope I got that math right because I'll look like an idiot if I didn't. <laughs> but, so Jack Latham and 
founded it, but Gordon Kingsley was the first CEO, and he built it very fast and uh, built it to a sale. And then John White bought the company back and essentially, you know, resurrected it because it was tossed off in, in an antitrust uh, to, to satisfy the FTC, right? And 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 so then he expands it into a three hundred or multi hundred million dollar company, buys blood bank businesses, uh, but then he leaves. Jim Peterson expands the company internationally, and kind of ended the foray into blood bank business. And then you go into Brad, and he started the turnaround. So for you, ten years, you hire some other goofball to write the company history. <laughs> What are they going to say about the Brian Kincannon uh, regime? Um, I hope they say nothing about the Brian Kincannon regime. I hope they they focus on a uh, uh, you know forty three hundred employees who believe passionately about what we do in our space, um, uh, how we innovate differently for tomorrow versus uh, what we did for the last decade. Um, uh, I I, uh, I don't believe it's about about the CEO, I believe it's about the products that we make, the the, the, the patients and donors we serve, uh, how we change the way tran transfusion medicine is practiced tomorrow versus how it's practiced today. Uh, we got to see some of that uh, uh, earlier when you looked at great companies like Guiden and St. Jude, and think about where we are today in 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 in, uh, uh, in, in cardiac medicine. Uh, it's it's amazing. So. I hope it's not a focus on me. I hope it's a focus on a company that is much larger and growing much faster than than even we are today. I, I thought you might say that, but <laughs> that's a good answer nonetheless. Thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks.